Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. Hope you've been enjoying these last weeks of summer. Ours was really nice. I'm definitely sad to see it end, but c'est la vie. Our kids are off to school next week, so that's basically the bookmark we're heading toward right now. It's bittersweet, but they already have one foot out the door at their respective ages. Alex and I are largely a taxi service at this point, which I don't think either of us really minds, though this can sometimes be brutal. Today, one kid had cross-country practice at 6 a.m., and there is not enough coffee in the world at this hour. I'm just going to wait another hour, I think, uncork some wine and fall asleep on the floor somewhere. I'm kidding. Half kidding. It actually sounds like a fine plan the more I think about it. But I digress. We have a great guest for you this week. We talked this morning with Aaron Price Wright, a San Francisco-based partner with Index Ventures who focuses largely on enterprise software and AI, and who has had an interesting career, including a stint at Goldman Sachs, and later before joining Index, four years with Palantir, the tech giant that helps governments and law enforcement and big commercial enterprises like Airbus decipher vast amounts of data. She studied engineering at Stanford and mathematics and computer science at Oxford and is definitely someone who founders developing AI applications for specific needs should know, unless Index has already funded a company working on the same specific need, which is an actual danger given the firm has 20 plus artificial intelligence slash machine learning companies in its portfolio. We talked with Price Wright today about what piques the firm's interest. We also wanted to talk to her about a deal that Index has struck with Oracle to get some of their portfolio companies more of the computing power they need, and which is very hard to come by right now, as much bigger companies in the U.S. and elsewhere hog up the world's supply of AI chips. We really enjoy talking to her. We hope you'll enjoy the conversation too. But first, a word from our sponsor. Don't miss Saster Annual 2023 this September in San Francisco. Join the world's largest SaaS and cloud event on the planet. 12,000 global SaaS founders, executives, and investors will be coming together for Saster Annual this September for three days of high-quality content, networking, and more. Companies of all sizes and scale from A to Z will be there, from Adobe through Zoom. Will you? Listeners can get 20% off by using code STRICTLYVC at checkout on sasterannual2023.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R annual2023.com. See you there. It's so nice to be meeting you. Your background is really interesting. You've been with Index for four and a half years, focusing on enterprise software and AI. But right before this, you were the head of product for Palantir's data analytics and machine learning platform. Can you give us a little insight into what that role entailed? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I joined Palantir originally actually as a four deployed engineer. So I was working directly with customers, mostly in their commercial business. 
who were doing large-scale data transformation, data innovation, large-scale compute projects. So these are big industrial customers, BP, Airbus, Ferrari, that were using data in really interesting ways to create digital twins of their operating business. Joined as an engineer working on projects like that. And it was around the time that Palantir was really focused on productizing a lot of the learnings that we were getting from our big customers to help bring those in a more scalable way to more organizations around the world. So I moved over from the business side of the organization to the engineering organization to try to build out the first real product function at scale. And so my job as a leader in product at Palantir was less about going off in a room and imagining what we should build and actually looking at the hundreds of deployments that Palantir had running with customers all over the world to try Mm -hmm. to understand what were the patterns we were seeing, what were customers asking us for, where were we building really interesting custom product with customers that we should really pull back into the core platform and make available to everyone. And one of the big things we saw is that at the time, Palantir had no AI or machine learning offering within the core platform. It was very much focused on data integration and data pipelines. But when we looked at what customers were doing with their data, they were really starting to push the boundaries on how they could use machine learning in their business. So we were doing a lot of custom machine learning and AI development. So one of the big things I spent my time on and that had a product role was building out that AI and ML strategy and pulling a lot of those product concepts back into Palantir's core platform and and launch a longer term product roadmap and plan. So it was really exciting. It was during the height of the last big AI wave when there was a lot of really interesting high-scale machine learning work going on, not generative AI, more traditional and classical ML methods. But a lot of the core principles apply to how enterprises are thinking about generative AI as well. Right. I've always said the idea of digital twins is so interesting. But the bottom line is, you know a lot about graphic processing units or GPUs because Palantir needed these then to power the tech that you were helping to build or your customers were using it or, or both. So actually, traditional machine learning didn't necessarily require GPUs in order to run. It's really been with the advent of the transformer model, the architecture came out in 2019, and the growth of these massive, massive models with hundreds of billions of parameters, that the GPUs became much more central to the development of AI. So it's actually more of a recent phenomenon than that. It wasn't something that was necessarily top of mind when we were doing high-scale machine learning at Palantir. So I guess this evolution and the subsequent shortage is as new to you as it is to everyone else. I wanted to talk to you because you were featured in this really interesting New York Times piece authored by Aaron Griffith this past week about the desperate hunt for the AI boom's most indispensable prize, these GPUs. And it sounds now from the piece like Index's portfolio companies, like everyone else, are being impacted by this chip shortage. It's a sizable portfolio. Index lists 20 AI slash machine learning companies. I'm sure not all of them, again, fall into this camp of newer generative AI. But I just was wondering, as a starting point, if you could talk to me a little bit about how you and your partners decide who to fund in this very, very crowded landscape. Yes, of course. So backing up, access to compute is one of the biggest challenges that AI companies face. And it's a 
especially hard for an early stage company to get their hands on GPUs. It's less about the cost in particular, but actually the fact that something like 95% plus of GPU capacity is already allocated to large players in this space. They make these pretty big pre-commitments with cloud vendors. So if you're an early stage company and you're just trying to get started training or fine-tuning a model, there's usually a really long lead time between when GPUs are even available. Like It can be three months to a year in some cases, and it's really hard to just get started. And the other thing that's interesting is that if you're an early stage company that's just still figuring out what your product is you don't even know how many GPUs you need. So that process Mm -hmm. of discovery of understanding what your workloads are going to look like can be super challenging for early stage companies. So we're partnering with Oracle to provide GPUs to our earliest stage portfolio companies because we want to help remove that barrier of access at the super early days so that they can really focus on what matters from day zero. And ultimately, the goal is to help all of these companies graduate to their own cluster. We're not in the business of providing these massive GPU clusters to our companies who are building large models who really should be signing these contracts with the cloud providers themselves. But we really want to give them a head start so that they can start building faster as a way to help level the playing field. So just to make clear for listeners who made me didn't read the story that Erin wrote, she had said that Index has, as you're saying here, struck its own deal with Oracle. Oracle is providing your startups with a mix of NVIDIA's chips, because Oracle has been buying billions of dollars of these chips, along with an older version called the A100 chip. And Aaron said that Oracle is doing this at no cost. So I understand why you're doing it, because your portfolio companies need your help here, and this is a temporary solution. But can you walk us through how this came together? If you're an early stage company that really wants to build a very specific product, whether it's an application for a specific business need, or you're maybe something more in the infrastructure space, but where you might have some need for compute, it misaligns incentives because as a company in that space, it's going to be really hard for you to make the same kind of scale of commitment that a foundation model company can build. And Mm -hmm. so we really wanted to make sure that people who are building against very tangible business problems didn't feel like they had to change their business model or change the way they were representing themselves or change the way they were fundraising in order to just get access to GPUs. So it was really born out of seeing this pattern again and again with early stage companies where we were like, this is where index as a fund actually has real leverage and we can use our position in the market, our relationships, and the fact that we can aggregate this demand across multiple companies to really provide a value additive service to folks who are building real tangible, concrete businesses against tangible, concrete problems. And Index has a lot of resources, like you said, relationships, also capital. I guess, is Index putting a down payment together or purchasing these chips outright from Oracle? Are you giving Oracle a stake in these startups? So we're not purchasing any chips outright. The partnership with Oracle is that Index makes the pre-commitment on the behalf of our startups and pays the cloud bill. Oracle manages the cluster. They've been a fantastic partner. And then our companies get access to that GPU cluster for free. So you're paying in advance. And I guess that obviously is not a problem for your LPs. Did you have to talk to them about that? That's probably something that's not typical of what you would do historically. Yeah. In terms of the actual structure of how the agreement works, I'll probably (laughs) hold off on sharing too many of those details. Well, good work. (laughs) I, I mean, it says something that Index was 
seemingly able to cut to the front of the line because Oracle could just be selling these to the highest bidder. Is it an exclusive relationship? There's nothing to prevent other venture firms from doing the same thing, is my question. Oh, yeah, of course. There certainly isn't. And I think one benefit that Oracle gets out of it is to meet the next generation of fantastic companies as early as possible. So they're in the process of using our GPU cluster. We're Mm -hmm. actively helping our companies navigate the process of signing their own dedicated cloud deal. Mm -hmm. So the idea is not for them to be on this in perpetuity. It's for them to develop relationships with Oracle and AWS and the other large cloud providers to sign their own dedicated contracts. So this way, Oracle gets to meet these early teams kind of right at inception. And one of your portfolio companies, Cohere, counts Oracle as one of its backers, along with NVIDIA, which is two of the best companies you could want to have involved with your portfolio companies right now. I'm just wondering, is Index trying to show these two companies basically everything you're funding right now in hopes of getting the companies involved, given that everyone's looking for an edge here to gain access to computing power? We have close relationships with both NVIDIA and Oracle. And I think that one of the ways we really can help our portfolio companies is making sure they're connected to the right people at the right time so that they get the resources that we need. And Aaron, forgive me because this is a little bit a field for me. I'm trying to learn on the fly here. But I had also seen, in addition to the billions of dollars on chips that Oracle is buying, it's also spending even more on central processor units, CPUs from Ampere Computing, which is a chip startup it has invested in, an advanced micro device. Can you explain to listeners, myself included, why? I was under the impression that general purpose chips like CPUs could be used for simpler AI tasks, but that CPUs are becoming less and less useful as AI advances. But if that's not the case, I'd love to understand better. Well, if you think about the rise in AI and what that means for software in general, that a lot of rote tasks that humans are doing over the next five years plus are going to be automated. So broadly speaking, that means that there is demand for GPUs in order to train these models, but it also means that there's broadly over the next decade going to just be increasing demand for computing capacity more generally. So Mm -hmm. I think it makes sense. My guess is they're trying to avoid a similar crunch as we have today with computing power as more and more workflows become automated and software-driven. I'm just curious because you're so immersed in this whole world. The Times piece also talked about startup founders and investors sharing highly technical tips for navigating the shortage. I'm just wondering, are there any technical tips toward that end that you can share with listeners? It's an unprecedented time, and there are so many different things to think about across interconnect speed and how do you think about managing your workflows across data centers or within the same data center or on the same spine or not on the same spine. There are lots of tools and tips. There are lots of interesting companies emerging out there to help manage this. You know, If you need to distribute things, if you're trying to pause jobs, set checkpoints, et cetera, the amount of information flow between teams across our portfolio companies broadly on Twitter is pretty astonishing. It's really mm-hmm. exciting to see this amount of information sharing happening That's in great. AI right now. Another thing that was mentioned in the story, Aaron shares that a company called DocuGami, whose AI service analyzes documents, recently secured access to the computing power it needed through a government program called Access, which is run by the National Science Foundation. Is that a program that your startups are also applying to, turning to? I actually don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't heard of it before. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was my first time seeing it. I did think it was really interesting. She also mentions in the piece, a startup that is trying to buy as many GPUs as it can and, and rent them back to people. Although we'll see if they succeed on that front. I did just want to go back to talk to you a little bit about your portfolio. Again, 20 companies. How do you as an investor ensure that your companies don't overlap? Is that any harder or more difficult than when it comes to traditional startups? For me, after seeing so many AI this, AI that, the companies are all starting to seem the same to me. You know, we make sense of your legal data or we automate your medical records. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, I don't think it's massively different than how we think about competition otherwise. When I think about AI, everyone paints it as this standalone category. But if I look forward even two years, let alone five or 10 Every single piece of software that we use will have AI as its beating heart. There will be no piece of code, no software, no application, no website that you visit that doesn't have AI as a core component of it. So I almost think about it like SaaS. You know, is every single SaaS company the same? No. Every single SaaS company has a database, every single SaaS company has a front end. Every single SaaS company has some interaction between the two. And AI is similar to a database in that respect. It's just a core building block in how you build software. So when you think about databases, there's dozens and dozens of different types of databases, some of which overlap for certain use cases and some of which don't. Even within our portfolio, we have eight or nine different database companies that all serve different types of use cases. So when I think about AI investing and where the potential overlap is, we're very early in the market. So there's going to be some movement and some change as companies figure out how to use these tools and Mm -hmm. what specific problems to go after. But it's not different than how we think about traditional SaaS investing from my perspective. One particularly interesting deal to me is Mistral AI based out of Paris, one of your portfolio companies. It was co-founded by alums from Google's DeepMind and Meta and is targeting enterprises with plans to release its first models for text-based generative AI next year. There is a lot of money slashing around, but this company just raised an especially big seed round of funding, I think $113 million back in June. What's so special about Mistral AI? Is it all about the founders? The founders are incredible. Some of the most preeminent researchers in their field. You know, and one thing that really struck us, they're already working very closely with one of our portfolio companies, Elan, which is a European healthcare provider. And as a European healthcare provider, there's a lot of restrictions that they have around data sharing internationally. And they wanted to make use of a lot of the new AI tools and features, given there's such a strong component of customer support and service and diagnosis and insurance processing, et cetera. So many fantastic use cases of AI within that business. But they can't use something like an open AI or Anthropic because they can't send their data abroad. So mm. we saw even just from examples in our portfolio, how strong of a need and desire there was for a model provider that was really tailored to the specific data privacy and government's needs of European customers. And given our strong presence in Europe, it made a lot of sense for Index to be involved. And does that company have the compute power that it needs? Or are you trying to help Mistral? Is that one of the the companies that you're helping to secure these GPUs? We're really designing this GPU program for companies that aren't training foundation models. So if a company is training a foundation model, they're going to go and secure a large independent 
GPU contract with the cloud provider themselves because they're going to need it. They're doing R&D. They're spending a lot of money on model training. This program is really designed for the little guys that aren't necessarily training hundreds of billions of parameter model from scratch, but are taking open source tools, doing some fine tuning on top of it to really build a specific business application. Because those are the companies that are really struggling to get access to dedicated GPUs today, if that makes sense. It does. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, I think you made that point earlier. And I No, that's okay. <laughs> also, Aaron, to your point, a lot of these companies are young. They're, they're going to change. They're going to evolve. And I, I apologize that this is a dumb question, but Cohere, it builds and trains AI models for enterprise customers. Is there any chance that a Cohere and a Mistral could end up competing against one another? They're both in the foundation model space. I mean, our view, and I think the view of both companies is that this is a massive, massive market. When you think about the long-term TAM over 10 years, it almost feels uncapped. And when you look at the growth of OpenAI, for example, and the adoption of ChatGPT just as a consumer product over the last nine months, it's pretty astonishing. So we see that there's a lot of green space to attack specific parts of this problem. So not so worried about it. And Aaron, I want to let you go, although it's been really a pleasure talking to you. I just wondered what you make of, of course, we had ChatGPT blew out of the gate in November, set the world on fire. There's been so much money raised over the last you know, nine months or so. It has too much money been spent on these startups, or do you think that we are just in the early innings, as VCs like to say? We are in the early innings. I do think that we're rapidly entering a cooling off period in terms of sentiment, especially for some of these very large rounds and especially from traditional VCs. There's still a really big gap between the promise and power of the core models of technology and what it's going to take for them to be actually used and useful across many use cases in the enterprise. There's just a huge infrastructure gap missing that needs to be filled. And it's not going to be filled overnight. It's going to take some time. So I think over the coming 12 months, while I'm still very excited about the power of the core technology and how transformational it's going to be for the world, I think we're going to see a little bit of a backing off as companies really grapple with it, figure out the ROI, prioritize use cases, and start actually building real things beyond maybe the one or two prototype demo apps that they've been working on for the last six months. And that's when we're going to start seeing the infrastructure emerge that's going to start supporting these use cases at scale. And Erin, before we go, just curious, how many companies are you hearing from on a weekly basis? And has that tapered off or is it continuing to grow in volume? No, I would say it's continuing to grow. The, The pace of pitches that we're hearing is definitely increasing. And I would say that they're starting to be more and more focused on solving specific problems versus the very general foundation model company type pitches that we might've been getting six months ago. I'm just wondering if the deals are structured any differently when it comes to these types of AI companies. So the thing to bear in mind is when a company is setting out to train a really large foundation model, especially Mm -hmm. today, given there are several strong players in the market already, you have to think about the structure of capital over time. This is a very (laughs) capital intensive business. And if you were starting a new foundation model company today, it's 
pretty tough to rationalize it from a VC perspective. And unless you're solving a really specific problem, that's not addressed by the existing players, because you have to think that you're going to go on to have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in order to be competitive. And you're at a disadvantage because you're starting, you know, one, two, three, five years behind the other players. So when you think about funding a new foundation model today, I think the structure of the deal really matters and how VCs think about whether or not it makes sense as like a net new VC investment for a new company starting today. So considering the long-term capital requirements of a business is one of our core jobs. And it's very different between someone that's going to go train a hundred billion plus foundation model versus an infrastructure company or an application company that might have some costs related to compute over time, but much, much lower than like some of the large foundation model players. So it's definitely a big consideration for us in terms of how we think about the capital requirements over time and thus how we would structure a deal or frankly, whether or not we would invest at all. Right. And then just final question in terms of the next three to six months for people who might be curious how to get in Texas attention and are in the AI space. Is there anything in particular that's somehow not been covered that you would like to see somebody start working on? Yeah. The two areas where I'm really excited are, first of all, the application layer where you have a really differentiated view on a specific market that's underserved by technology today, where there isn't a large incumbent digital native SaaS player that can easily incorporate AI into their product, but where AI enables a net new workflow that wasn't possible before, where you are a real deep expert in that space. And if you can think about the product and the workflow and how to incorporate AI into it, very, very, very exciting. That's where we're seeing super exciting ideas happen today. The second category is really in the infrastructure space. So the picks and shovels, how are you able to put these large language models into practice in an application? What are the things that are going to be required for in an enterprise context to do that? So the big gaps that I see today are there are several around security, access and data management, especially when you think about autonomy and agents and what does that mean for your enterprise primitives around security? I think that there's a big gap there. I think that there's also a big gap There's several companies right now around model serving and inference, which I'm a little bit less excited about potentially. But what is really exciting in that space as companies move in this direction, I'm really interested to see what happens is model routing. So I imagine that most enterprise use cases are going to end up being a combination of multiple different external model providers, as well as models that they've trained and fine-tuned themselves. And a very interesting infrastructure problem will be, what model do you use when based on what criteria and how do you make that decision live in real time, whether it's cost, performance, security, et cetera. So really excited about companies in that space as well. So anybody building in those areas, please, please reach out. (laughs) That's interesting, toggling between them. Last question. I'm sorry. I know I said last question, but it just came to mind and I'm curious. Do you have any thoughts about WorldCoin? I guess you mentioned security. I think it's really an interesting idea that in the future, it's going to be hard to differentiate between a human and a neural net. I'm just curious if you've looked at this company you know, as an industry observer and have any thoughts. 
I'll keep my thoughts relatively brief. I have not scanned my eyeballs, so I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, Erin, really a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry it's taken us so long. Thank you so much, Connie. It was great. That's it. Thanks very much, everybody. And special thanks to Saster. Please check out their conference at sasterannual2023.com. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.